2: Mr. Chief Justice,
1: please the, the court. Every community should have a radio station. They should.
3: This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Welcome to In Studio with Life of the Law's team, where we ask questions about the law, get some answers, or at least start looking for the answers, each month, we present an investigative feature report about the law, and two weeks later, like today, our team meets up in the studios of KQED in San Francisco to talk about our investigations and all things law. I'd like to introduce you to our in-studio team today, and they can brief you on who they are and what they bring
0: to the table. First off, Brittany Botorf. Hi, Nancy. Good morning. My name is Brittany, and I'm an attorney in San Francisco. Um, and I'm also the advisory board chair for Life of the Law. Thank you. Osagi Obasagi.
1: Hi, Nancy. Uh, my name is Osagi Obasugi, and I'm a professor at UC Berkeley.
3: And Tony Gannon.
1: Hi, Nancy. I am your producer, uh, and I'm a documentary filmmaker.
3: Thank you. And we're welcoming Kirsten Jesuits heidel our post-production editor, to our first in studio. Welcome, Kirsten.
2: Hello, Nancy. Tell us about yourself. I am Kirsten Jesuit's Heidel, and I am Life of the Law's post-production editor. And otherwise, I'm underemployed and overeducated. <laughs> and
3: that's why we love you. <laughs> 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 so we're going to go into part one of our, if there are parts, we're going to begin our conversation talking about our most recent investigative report, Radio Silenced. Tony, you worked with our reporter Ian Koss on this story. Why don't you tell us about what we found? In Radio Silenced.
4: Right. Um, So our most recent feature episode is, as you just said, Radio Silenced, our episode 102. Um, To follow along in this conversation, you don't need to go back and listen to it, though We highly suggest that you do. Uh, I loved working on this episode with reporter Ian Koss. It's the story of two community radio stations in Boston, Massachusetts. It's told through the perspective of one longtime listener of both of these stations, um, a DJ of one of the stations, and a founder of one of the stations. So it's a really great story because it not only gives us this sort of really intimate look at these two radio stations, but it takes us on this little historical journey back to the birth of radio um, and to the birth of certain FCC regulations. Um, FCC regulations in particular surrounding public interest, convenience, and necessity. So yeah, the story takes us through the fate of these two radio stations, it has really great tape of the day that one of the stations was was raided by federal agents. Um, if you're interested, you should definitely go back and take a listen. Um, but even if you don't, even if the subject does not interest listeners, they should definitely go back because it's just beautifully produced. Um, reporter Ian Koss was not only able to bring in the story, but he's also a musician. So he composed all of the music that you hear in that episode.
3: So these were two black-owned radio stations shut down by the FCC in Boston. And Ian Koss talked to this really wonderful man who grew up listening to these radio stations. And then he was in his house both times listening as the radios were shut down. And what that meant to him, you know, to lose a community voice. They weren't just any radio station. They were his
0: radio stations. I loved this episode. I thought it it was beautifully produced. Um, and I, I loved the music and the sounds. Uh, and I, I thought these people, I almost called them characters because it seemed like a story, but these people were really engaging. And I, on paper, I did not think this was going to interest me. I just thought, Nope, I I'm only I'm only listening cuz it's my homework and I have to talk about it. <laughs> and of course I listen to every podcast episode of Life of the Law. But I was it's it's been one of my favorite episodes, Nancy. I really have to say that. So I I just loved it. So what did you discover that you didn't know? I did not know about the importance to people like Mr. Lawson of these um community neighborhood kind of based radio stations. And I'd grown up later in the 80s, and everything was already pretty much corporate by then. And so I just had, you know, I never knew that something like that existed. Uh, Lawson talked about how he didn't even have a TV. And so this radio was his portal to his community and the outside world, um, and how important it was to him in his life. And so that was very eye opening for me. Kirsten, what'd you think?
2: Uh, So when I first started working in radio, I started working at a local radio station in Berkeley called KPFA, which is part of the Pacifica network. So it's not quite a community radio station, but it still has a super community radio station vibe to it. And they were shut down by the FCC at one point for something. I don't remember what it is now, but um, they have a very, like they have the same sort of, Uh, state of mind as these like local Boston radio stations so when I was listening to it I thought that it was really interesting and it took me back to like four years ago when I first started doing radio and everyone was like really focused on the community that they were in and like serving that community and um, I also thought that the history was really interesting like I didn't know the stuff about the Titanic Hmm. at all (laughs) and so I was like it was this
3: ship it went
2: yeah (laughs) yeah hmm um but, yeah, you know, could have added that to the movie. Rose and Jack go down and the radio guy's just sitting there trying to get out a message.
3: <laughs> and then the role that, and at the time, there was no expectation, according to Ian Cause's story, that any ship in the area would be on the frequency so that they would get the message. So that was the rise or the kind of the inception of the importance of having uh, some kind of regulation So that, you know, if you're on a radio, uh, if you're out on a ship and you uh, share, you know, a frequency that you will be listening in case somebody else is going having trouble. Um, Yeah. So made
2: like radio not the Wild West anymore. You mm, have some rules and mm. some regulations, but but then like now there's a lot of rules and regulations.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I thought it was fascinating the part about. How the evolution of those regulations in radio—that um, there's a frequency and there's only so many frequencies—and so the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, was basically uh, created to regulate who could have access to those radio frequencies. But it got really nasty politically um, when low-power FM stations started popping up, and you know, people who started—I don't want to give the whole story away. I'm giving the whole story away. <laughs> for those of you who didn't listen. For those of you who listened, you know what's coming. But I think it was really fascinating to see the political kind of gamesmanship behind doors that limited who could have low-power FM and the role of even, you know, NBC and National Public Radio in 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 limiting who could have low-power FM licenses and, and the, the opportunity for people who had started one Without a license, getting shut down with the understanding that, you know, the new regulations would give amnesty and then, whoa, that amnesty uh, being uh, removed from the regulations. That was very strange. Um, And I didn't know that history. So it was really – Osagi, what would you think?
1: Yeah, so when I was listening to this episode, what really struck me was the role between – or the relationship between radio and identity – so, you know, I moved to the Bay Area in 2002 for graduate school, and it was my first time um, living on the West Coast. And I was a kind of a new person to Berkeley. And what really kind of created my California identity was uh, a radio station by the name of KBLX. Now, it's not a local radio station or community. I mean, it's a local radio station, but it's not a low power community radio station. But it was a radio station that often had DJs who talked about local community issues. And it really kind of created my sense about what was going on in the Bay Area at that time and then a few years uh, later it was um some of the morning programming was uh uh I should say the DJs were replaced by a national morning telecast um that dealt with, it was nationally syndicated and i remember that shift and it disturbed me in ways uh because not only did i miss the local DJs who were talking about kind of local community issues but i was also just um i felt a sense of displacement in terms of not having the voice of the people or uh, the voice of individuals who I think reflected the people's interests as part of my daily routine. And so as I was listening to this this episode that I was really reminded by how much of our identity is constituted by the media that we consume and the unique role that uh, local radio plays in providing that service.
4: I I suppose and I suppose we should make a distinction, right? I mean, in case it's not clear to, to any listeners. Uh, the distinction between community, low-powered radio, and public radio. There is a distinction, and I think public radio kind of falls under the rubric of NPR. And NPR kind of is a villain in this story. Um, and that was something that I totally did not expect, but it, it, once you listen to the story, you understand why. Um, the story really hit home for me, um, just anecdotally, because m- this past weekend, my mother was among the, evacue- the evacuees of Northern California surrounding the Oroville Dam. And on my way up there, because so I found out that she needed to evacuate. So I just basically got in my car and went north. Um, and basically, my my main line of communication w- were local radio stations all the way up there, or one particular uh, local radio station. And they were not really, you know, they played music normally, but they were interrupting their cover their their station uh, to just do like ongoing coverage of of the Orville Dam. So it was if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have necessarily known what was going on.
3: So that is is that the real value of radio now? We have podcasts. We're moving into more, I don't know, more listeners are tuning into podcasts than public radio, or is that is that, I, I believe there's a shift. What happens, I mean, what is really lost other than emergency access? Um, and what will take the place of that if podcasts kind of take over the radio market? Nobody knows. We we're part. at a loss. <laughs> what? No, no,
2: no. <laughs>
3: But what role does the law play? If if we're back at, like, we started this whole conversation about the radio silence with, you know, not we didn't start, but Kirsten brought it up, um, about t- the Titanic. And at the time, radio station, the the other ships were not expected under the law to tune in to a frequency so they would know if there was a ship going down. Well, Where does the radio, where does the, what what role does the law play today? Here it is a hundred years later, and we now have radio stations moving into podcasting, public community radio stations being shut down or limited. So what role does the law play in creating a safe regulatory environment for people like In Oroville, where your mom is, Tony, where, you know, the dam could, you know, because of faulty repairs or whatever over the years, the dam is at risk of collapsing and affecting 200,000 people. And people find out about that through public radio. So if we're moving into podcasting, what do you what do we where do we go with radio now? What role does the law play in that?
1: Well, I think a lot of this comes back to a classic conversation of of what is the role of federalism. So, in constitutional law, federalism is the, the basic relationship between the federal government and states and localities. And so, you know, so much of our of our of our American history is kind of understanding what that balance is, and understanding what limited powers the federal government has, and providing certain regulations in the public interest, and then what powers are retained to the states and localities. And this conversation fits right into that tension, and because on the one hand, you know, we want the federal government to provide ground rules for everyone, so there's some type of consistency and predictability in terms of how, for example, radio waves are distributed among various competing interests or various entities. On the other hand, there's something to be said about an unregulated space where local communities can communicate to one another outside of the reach of the federal government, and that's what this this story is really about. It's about local communities using low power radio to communicate. Uh, with one another and to share stories and to play music and to inform one another through, the, through these uh, through these mechanisms that theoretically should not disrupt other people trying to use the airways, but still in a way runs into the purview of the federal government and their ability to regulate. And so at the heart is this, this, I mean, I hadn't thought about this until you asked the question, Nancy, this is really a story about federalism. <laughs> uh, it's a story about, you know, what types of power do we get a federal government to regulate? And at what point does that power, um creep into the kind of uh shall we say the the sovereignty of of local community citizens to live their lives in a way that they see is best fit for them yeah
4: one of the lines that sticks with you in the episode is uh, a line by Greg lawson he says a couple of times you know every community needs a radio station and that, that really kind of is the hinge of the show in my opinion um that question or maybe phrasing that as a question um to me, the system of radio is just, is just amazing. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that I can turn on a radio and yeah. And if someone were broadcasting locally, uh, relevant news, I find that to be amazing as opposed to turning on the radio and just listening to corporate, corporate, uh, profit driven, uh, entertainment. Right. I think that that is, there's a real value to that. And to me, I think part of this conversation is whether or not, um, something like the internet is a, um, public utility, right? And that's, that is sort of the question that is being raised right now with uh, the potential rolling back of net neutrality.
0: What is net neutrality? So net neutrality was a priority in the Obama administration and they the FCC passed rules that maintained basically the open radio-like state of the internet that would be parallel to the 1920s radio um Framework, and there was a lot of pushback against that at the time, particularly by Verizon and Comcast, the the big um, data ISP providers, and then also by the big players like Netflix and Amazon and. YouTube. And what they wanted was more of a two track system, a fast lane and a slow lane so that they could charge more. This is my understanding. I'm not in any way an expert in this, um, that they could charge more for services that used a lot more bandwidth, such as Netflix and YouTube that have really high, uh, caliber streaming and so forth. And I, I don't know what other things use that much bandwidth, um, my son plays a lot of games like Overwatch that uses an inordinate amount of bandwidth. So I would assume that they, they would want to fast lane those two and charge a premium to make sure that all of that came through seamlessly. And then there'd be a slower lane, which would be more akin to like your AM or even your low wattage. Um, and But there was a lot of people who didn't like that two train, two lane system, and so they wanted to keep it neutral. And that's what the Obama administration promoted, and that's what the FCC enforced, and that actually got appealed to the D.C. Circuit, and and those regulations were upheld. Um, But now it looks very uncertain whether— So the two lanes were upheld? No, no, no. no. the neutrality neutrality
3: was upheld. The The neutrality neutrality
4: was upheld. upheld.
0: You all know this, and (laughs) I am coming at
4: that. Partially Uh, because it was deemed a public utility.
0: Right, Uh. Mm -hmm. right. And so now, though, with the Trump administration and with the new Commissioner Ajit Pai, um, there's a lot of question of whether or not that's going to remain neutral or whether they can go back and roll those regulations back, which would be within the purview of the FCC and and under the new chairman. Um, And there have been indications of that. Uh, Pai, at one time, I believe, was an attorney for Verizon and, and has just... Has said on multiple occasions that he questions the paradigm of net neutrality. And so it's very possible that those will be rolled back. And as well, even though he's only been in his position for a few weeks, he has already um, done things that have concerned Mm -hmm. people in terms of allowing kind of more neutral access and more more people having a voice. Um, he rolled back proposal, proposed regulations on the overly expensive prison phone rates that you probably know about, Nancy, since mm. you use those phone it's lines. It's very expensive. Um, and he um, got rid of the proposal to allow more competition for the cable box market. And um, he blocked nine companies from providing low-income families with discounted high-speed internet services. So all of those do not bode well for keeping... Net neutrality rules in place mm-hmm. under his uh, chairmanship.
4: What is the argument for net for doing away with net neutrality? That's the thing I I try to see the other side of it, and I don't really. I mean, the way I'm framing it, the way in my mind, I, I just have it framed as like these corporate, you know, corporate figures, Comcast. They want more money, and they want to take advantage of this system. Um, But I can't, I'm I'm trying to figure out if there are any benefits to uh, consumers, if there is a sense, a way of looking at it where it is beneficial. But I I don't know, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm trying to see it on both ways.
0: Well, I think one argument would be, and this is similar to the argument made in the 20s when this happened around the radio frequencies, was that they're just too jammed and it's chaos and you need to just parcel out who, you know, and that's how the whole public interest convenience and necessity arose. Because if you had too many people doing their own little, you know, things, um, you weren't really maximizing that utility, if you will, for the public good. And it's it is a finite thing. There's just a finite number of airwaves. And with the internet, there's a finite width for for the bandwidth, you know, which is seems to be constantly expanding, but still is finite and so the one argument is you need to have the maximum benefit for the maximum number of people
4: but that's for the radio that doesn't apply to the internet does public interest convenience and necessity
0: no it doesn't but i'm just saying i think that that argument could be made though because you still you have the same um logistical finite restrictions right and i but i do think that there's a big profit motive That's (laughs) I, that's, <laughs> the, that's, the, that's
4: where my mind goes like, oh, no, I don't want this because of, they're going to make more money off of us. And it should be this unrestricted, you know, uh, sort of Internet that we currently have, which apparently we've been taking, taking for granted for years, taken for granted for years. But
0: it seems like people have been saying that for years.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That's what in that. And so things are apparently about to change. And we're going to, I don't know, live through that yet another thing that's changing.
3: The interesting thing about net neutrality are the stakeholders in this. Um, there, um, who brought the article? Someone introduced an article about um, uh, people of color having being siding with the larger corporate interests. And that seemed like the NAACP and um, the Asian was, American advancing justice. Yeah.
4: That was an interesting article. Yeah, that was really.
3: So why why are they aligning themselves with the larger corporate interests on net neutrality?
1: Well, what this article suggested is the idea that these were corporate partners for these organizations and that these corporations had donated uh, significant amounts of money to various causes um, that were supported by these uh, organizations in support of various civil rights. Um, Again, I have not looked deeply into this, but I think the the optics of how this initially looks are are troubling. Um, And they raise questions about what is the interest of organizations that hold themselves out as promoting civil rights somehow supporting the idea that the internet should not be neutral. And you would think that organizations in support of civil rights would be in support of access um, and making sure that all people um, or all entities have equal access to the internet, and that seems to not be the case here. So I do think this is a question that deserves more probing, and I I would hope that there is more research and discussion about this. But the question is,
4: why would organizations like the NAACP be in favor of doing away with net neutrality? And I thought the answer, based on the article, was that they get a lot of funding from these same corporations. Is that not the – is that is not what I – That's what that's the what article I, said. That's what the article said. I don't know <laughs> the,
3: the truth of that. And <laughs> well, this was an article in The like Intercept. Which is like a really, Right. If you are a listener, a regular listener, or a new listener to Life of the Law, we offer behind-the-scenes looks at uh, a look at our work and our in-studio conversation. If you would like to have more information or get the links, you can go go to our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Um, Kirsten is our post-production editor, so she puts the newsletter together. And it's really interesting. Um, And she will put links to all of the articles that we actually pulled together for the in-studio conversation. And some we may not get to, but those who um, we are referring to, you will have a direct link to all of the articles, as well as if you go to our, just go straight to our website and click on the in-studio episode, which is in the banner uh, this week, you will also have access to the articles.
1: And I think one one point that you made, I think to be fair, uh, the, the correlation between a, a corporation donating money to an organization and their ultimate position may not necessarily be causation. Um, yes, so, thank you. So I think you know there may very well be principal reasons why the NAACP might think that net neutrality is a bad thing, and uh, that's something that should be asked of them directly and explored. So um, on the one hand, I think we should pay attention to the connection between uh, funding support and 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 uh, certain um, decisions made by these organizations. But on the other hand, I don't, I don't think we should necessarily jump to the conclusion that the uh, the correlation is necessarily a direct causal relationship. Absolutely, yeah, You're totally right.
0: And going back to Tony's earlier question about why these companies these companies would want to advocate non net neutrality back in the twenties. Congress created the FCR, the Federal Commission of Radio, and at the time, according to a Smithsonian article written by Clive Thompson from 2014 when this issue was coming about, when the regulations were proposed, um, he quotes that at the time in the 20s, the FCR warned that there was not enough room on broadcast band, radio band, for, quote, every school of thought religious, political, social, and economic, each to have its separate broadcasting station, its mouthpiece in the ether. And I just, that really resonates to me right now because I feel like right now on the internet, every school of thought, religious, political, social, and economic (laughs) school has an ability to have its mouthpiece on the ether. And so I, to me, this, there does seem to be an underlying, and I'm not sure who's behind it, of silencing of that.
2: Well, like, once you start regulating, how do you stop? So, like, you start regulating by being like, oh, these people get faster ones and mm-hmm. these people, people get, like, a slower lane. But then, like, you know, if you are, for whatever reason, anti-Wikipedia, then you can be like, well, I just don't like you, so you get the slower lane. Like, I'm against what you're doing. And so, like, where, how do you control how the like fast versus slow lane is even applied at that point? Maybe it's a truth test.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I say that Sarah. in jest because you know, we we're, we're in this world now where CNN is apparently false news too, and and so we're and talk, the New York Times, I right. believe, and, and the so, so we're talking Post. about a government regulating the the whole our whole access to information as we get it right now. Um, and what kind of fr- what would that look like? What kind of regulations would that entail? And and I, I fear that it could be, a gigantic silencing, of of not just the fringe and the crazy kind of s- stuff, but mainstream and.
3: But who determines well, like, at that point what is the fringe?
2: Well, what like, are the crazy? Part of the great thing about the internet is like, you know, like radio connects you with your local community, but if there's no one in your community that you identify with, then you have the internet now. So you can identify with someone all the way across the world who has your same super weird niche interest and, like, you found your person. And so, like, that's, I mean, I guess, like, now I'm just making the argument for net neutrality, but, like, that's the great part about the internet is, like, it connects everybody instead of just, like, your local community. And so like if you take away the ability to do that then like what is the internet like that's what the internet is there for
4: and sort I, of and i think but a part of that part of the discussion i think is seeing that the people making the decisions uh, as to who you are exposed to are basically your internet providers you know in a world without net neutrality is that is that not right basically like comcast will be like well we're going to favor netflix and we're going to favor these sites and we're going to not favor these sites Um, So it's not even a question uh, of—it's definitely not a question of the government. It's a question of just whoever happens to be your particular internet provider. So I could foresee this weird thing where you you want—you know—you end up paying for a certain provider because you know that it's going to unleash the the sort of the channels that you are used to, and you have to pay a premium for that. and it, it's it's all sorts of weird though to to me um i just want to read this quote though um that her herbert hoover said it is inconceivable that we should allow so great a possibility for service for news for entertainment and for vital commercial purposes to be drowned in advertising chatter like i don't know i feel that like, that
3: was herbert herbert, <laughs> herbert hoover, hoover yeah, the from
4: the article that uh, brittany just referenced
3: hmm. so what how does that work in terms of um the new we have a new president um he is introducing a a person who will oversee the regulation and how soon could that happen? I mean, how quickly, what kind of long short-term and long-term impact could we be looking at in terms of the regulation of the new, of the internet? I mean, how quickly could this happen? How would that happen? Anybody know?
1: Hmm. I'm not not sure how quickly it would happen. I think, You know, if I can play devil's advocate for a moment and take the side of the folks who are against net neutrality, um, I think what they would argue is that um, uh, I think they would say that the government doesn't have a right to set the ground rules for how an open space, uh, how an open resource is distributed. So they're saying, look, what this what this new rule does is allows the market to determine um, which services should be provided. At a higher speed and at a lower speed, and that they would say, I think they would argue that this is the essence of an anti-regulatory stance that would keep the government out of the conversation and allow consumers and providers to to determine the terms upon which information is provided. So, the concerns about government governments somehow regulating uh, the content or the access to certain information is misplaced, and I, they would argue that rather this is an opportunity for consumers and providers to make sure that the content that they most that is most desired. Is provided in the best way possible.
3: If they can afford it.
1: Right. But that's true for any type of resource that's in the open market. That's kind of American capitalism. Right. So but, I'm, I'm going to take off that hat now and go, go <laughs> right. back to my own views.
0: And, and so it, it, <laughs> under, under that system, um, our national parks would also be fully commercially developed.
1: And there are people that would willingly argue that very point about mm-hmm. national parks, about any other public utility. Right. Mm-hmm. About water. About water, anything. Post office. So
3: net neutrality. We have discussed that. We, I, I have a lot I still have, a, I still have a lot of questions about net neutrality. But for those of you listening to this podcast right now, um, if, you, if you have something to say about it, if you know something that you want to contribute, if you would just send us an email, com- um, connect at lifeofthelaw.org and let us know what you think. Let us know what you know. Um, and we can put it on our website, share it on, you know, we also have a Twitter account, The Life of the Law, and Facebook, lifeofthelaw.org. So please go, is that right? Facebook is not .org, is it? No, it's just, it's
2: just Life of the Law. Okay,
3: <laughs> <laughs> you can go to our Facebook, Life of the Law, and uh, and share your thoughts. Um, I want to open the conversation up now to what we call um, our Uh, what do we call it? Grab bag. Thank you.
4: Up for grabs. Up for grabs.
3: I want to open up this conversation now to I want to open up this conversation now to up for grabs. The stories that we are this our team members are really compelled by like what are drawing us to the news and what um, we want to share. So everyone's put their articles together. But I do want to just start a little bit by talking about a little bit about the new pre- President Trump administration. And there was a press conference yesterday. Um, and, you know, it was a really fascinating press conference. I watched the whole thing. It was an hour and 17 minutes. Um, the first 25 were him just, you know, kind of talking um, in his sole press conference uh, since he's taken office. And then the last, the, the bulk of the rest of the, con- the press conference was with the press. You know, and I thought it was, it was pretty disturbing Um, And one of the most disturbing aspects of it for me was um, the fact that there was almost an argumentative tone between the press and the administration between what is fact and what is true. Um, Adam Gopnik, a reporter, a writer for The New Yorker, um, went on the Internet last night at midnight and wrote a, a really fascinating article kind of looking at the press conference. And he wrote... Trump's falsehoods are deliberate attempts to uh, warp the entire field of veracity, so as to defy the simplest parameters of sanity. You know, I mean, these, the language that's coming out of the voices of opinion edit- editors, um, writers, reporters is concern. You know, I'm kind of, I'd really like to know at Life of the Law, we produce this podcast about Life of the Law. Um, our senior producer, Tony Gannon, our post-production editor, Kirsten Jesuitz heidel Brittany Botorff, and Asagi Yabasaki as our uh, advisory board members. Um, What's going on, and what are you thinking about the way the law works with this now, um, some would call out-of-control administration um, in terms of how the law is actually uh, applied in the separation of powers and, you know, a democratic process. How how are you all feeling about it right about now?
4: There's a lot <laughs> to be said there. In that.
2: <laughs>
3: I'm glad you're laughing. That's a good sign.
2: <laughs> I Everyone is staring at me. Um, <laughs> so I guess, like... It's hard because it's obviously all concerning and troubling, um, but I think a lot of things that are happening right now are, like, sort of smoke and mirrors situations where, like, there's a lot of really big stuff happening that everyone's talking about and paying attention to. But then, like, very quietly, Congress is using it, using the Congressional Review Act to roll back the last six months of Obama's regulations without needing the 60 votes in Senate, just a simple majority. And so, like, now coal companies can dump byproduct in streams. And, like, there's a lot of small stuff that I think is also really troubling and, like, more immediately, has a more immediate effect that, like, is getting lost in, like, just the insanity of what's happening all the time, constantly.
4: I choose not to. I chose not to look at that press conference yesterday. Incidentally, um, I saw it in the in a bunch of news feeds. I saw a bunch of people looking at it, and I just was like, I'm not going to process this until I have a moment. Um, and I think that that I'm sort of piggybacking off the sentiment you're expressing that there's a lot of, or this idea that you're expressing of there being a lot of smoke and mirrors. Uh, and I think it's really easy for me to be caught up. Um, as yes, yeah, someone that is producing media to be caught up in this really mainstream uh, dialogue that Trump is is really sort of sort of uh, setting the tone of, or he's just he's he's like the conversation all the time, and a part of a part of what I think it's my responsibility to do is to, is to tune out <laughs> at times, um, which is what I did yesterday. Um,
3: so why did you tune out exactly? Why? Why did you make a choice because, not to listen to a press conference?
4: Because well, a because I just didn't have the time and to get angry. Um and I think that's what he wants. Is for mm. people to to he wants to rile people up. He wants to get them hooked. Um there's so many ways of hooking people uh into listening to them. Um it's often, you know, we we employ we try to employ music and pleasant uh you know, uh, you know, introduce people to, to to real people and and get people to listen that way. Trump uses a totally different tactic. Um so there it's, it's, um,
0: and he has more followers by and the he's way, got a lot. Of followers. <laughs> than Life of the Law has. <laughs> now,
4: now, at the, the moment, yeah. Future, <laughs> we're climbing. Um, but so, yeah, so I tune out. It's a, and I, I can't stop thinking about it though at the same time. Um, I'm reading a sci fi novel where one of the plot points is that they're trying to discredit science. <laughs> I keep on thinking of the, just the Trump administration, <laughs> um, with that. So, um,
0: I'm sorry, did you say? There, sci-fi or non-fiction? A sci-fi novel <laughs> called was, the, Three, "The Three Body Problem." That, that was a joke.
4: Yeah. Oh, was, I'm kind of slow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, Nancy, but that's—I choose not to buy it. Sometimes I choose not to.
3: So when you said when I have time, when I can absorb it, when when what is that environment like when you do sit back and take it in?
4: Put on some Wagner. Um, dim the lights. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't know. I, it, it, it tends to happen in really long fits of distraction. That's the problem. I think that it's we go down these wormholes of just being distracted by whatever is happening by Trump, whatever is happening on you know that the Trump is causing. I, I, I that's been my reaction is I just need to tune out, basically, mm-hmm. certain times of the day, anyway. But I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for. It is. Oh, it is. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Nancy. In terms of your question about how all of this kind of relates to the law, I, I, I'm seeing two forms of resistance going on. There's the more public resistance of people going to Congress, congressional um, offices. Especially, there's a lot planned for next week during the break, but already that's been happening. There's been many marches after the Women's March. Um, there's just groups forming all across uh, the country. And that's more the public resistance. But I think we're also starting to see, and especially this past week, more of an internal resistance that's almost insubordination, if, if that's the right word, about, you know, with the whole Flynn and the leaks. And um, I believe, who, Tony, was this your article that's about um, the leakers who exposed General Flynn's lie? Um, and. Also from the Intercept. <laughs> An article also from the Intercept.
4: Uh, we have no direct connection to the Intercept. But
0: but it raises the the issue of kind of the ethical um, stance of people who do that sort of thing. And, and you mean and leak? Who leak or or just in, like don't follow the rules? Because I mean, we have so many civil servants in the federal government who can just not do what they're supposed to or not do what they're told and i've listened to other programs talking about that may be a form of of resistance internally and so i'm just throwing it out there for the group to discuss how do you what's the law on that and how do you how do you manage like literally a million people i don't i don't know how many people work for the federal government but it's a it's a lot um and Tony can look it up because he's got a laptop. <laughs>
4: um, it has no internet. But no, I, the reason I chose that article uh, to discuss was because I was interested in this question of when it's time to act, when it is time to uh, break the law. Um, and actually, it's it's echoed in our current episode. There's a line uh, in there. I forget who says it, but he says, um, just because it's law doesn't make it right. Um, and so... That I mean, it's taken out of this context of the episode, which r- related to his community radio station. But it totally applies in this case. I mean, just the words at the very least apply in the in the sense that Glenn Greenwald was asking, what happens uh, when breaking the law is in the public interest?
3: but But in a way, we have two sides potentially breaking the law then. We have internal administrative resistance or federal resistance by individuals who are part of. The administration or part of the federal government because they don't have confidence and we also have potentially um, someone who is running for the presidency working with a foreign government breaking the law to ensure that he was elected president to ensure that his perspective or his uh, vision for the future would be realized um, and so it's kind of, the, the, the from my fear right now, and I do have a fear, is that the crumbling of confidence in a democratic process built on law is happening in multiple ways. Um, and then when, who comes in and says, I'm the law, this has got to stop. Um, and so, Asagi, you're a constitutional scholar. <laughs> Um, How does this, you know, where are you on this? Uh,
1: So I am, I have mixed sentiments on the one hand. Um, So in response to your initial question about yesterday's um, press conference, you know, what troubled me was the stunning lack of accountability. So there was a moment where. You know, President Trump uh, repeated his off stated uh, claim that he won the election with the most the widest margin of electoral college votes ever, which is just patently not true. And a journalist challenged him on that. And they did. Yes. And a journalist challenged him with with specific numbers of folks who had won by by wider margins to which the president responded by saying, well, I don't know. Someone just gave me these numbers. I don't know. I don't know. And that's a moment that's stunning for a lot of different reasons. One is the idea that a president would get before a group of journalists and the nation and repeat numbers that were that were not thoroughly vetted. So we all know these are untrue, right? But the fact that even taking at his own word that he's just repeating what's being said at that level is still troubling. But secondly, I, at a more substantive level, um, you know, the idea that um, the comfort with which the uh, president feels it necessary to repeat things that are easily verifiable as, or easily um, research is not being true is deeply disconcerting um, because he has to know that, we, that there are facts out there. Um, but at the same time, he feels the need to try to convolute the situation, which is, again, creating this sense of chaos that makes many people feel uncomfortable so again it gets back to the question of accountability because at some point as the leader of the country you have to be accountable to uh, the citizens and part of that accountability is being um, truthful. and when when faced with facts contrary to what you're saying acknowledging that and having some type of contrition and none of this is happening right now and so again this is we're talking about a rather insignificant point now in terms of margin of victory right and um though it's that exact point is insignificant the greater question is what happens when something that matters is on the line what happens when there is a big question of national if not global significance on the line and we are expected to take the word of someone who can't talk to us truthfully about the margin of victory so that's one concern i have on the other hand i left this week quite optimistic and my optimism comes from the courts and um, even though we are at a moment where reality and fact and truth is being questioned by our national leader, there is an adult in the room, or at least a series of adults in the room thus far. And that is the court system that is demanding a level of honesty and truthfulness in terms of what these executive orders regarding the travel ban mean when, in, in, in the context of our constitutional order. And thus far, they have said that these bans are not congruent or not consistent with our constitutional aspirations and our constitutional norms and what the law says. And for to uh, to have uh, a group of people who are demanding that there is, is some um, integrity to our constitutional system and a relationship to the various branches of government uh, gives me hope that at least Uh, at points where these executive actions are litigated, that the court will at least consistently ask the hard questions and be accountable where our executive branch has failed to do so.
3: But what's the impact of a president standing before the nation and saying so-called judges? And, as you say, um, presenting untruths that are easily clarified. Um, What is the... The, the the impact of that on a citizenry that is looking to—and, you know, when I was watching the press conference, it wasn't just that we were watching a man stand and talk. We were watching the president of the United States stand in the East Room of the White House with gold curtains behind him, with the seal of the president in front of him, with the press corps calling him Mr. President. So in that context— we have all been raised, I mean, I don't know, I was raised, I think the rest of us were raised, to believe that the president deserves and and should be given respect and honor. And in that, it's it's kind of a, a com- very confusing experience, as you mentioned, to watch a president say something so untrue, simple, just a simple piece of information, so untrue, and to hold it, even when challenged, that... Everything he's saying is creating, not everything he's saying, but so many pieces of information seem to be challengeable that um, it starts to create a very kind of squidgy feeling about the federal government and about the presidency. And when does that start? Who comes in? What branch comes in and reestablishes Mm -hmm. a feeling of structure?
1: And I think that branch is the judiciary, right? So on the one hand, you have... Uh, the elected branches of Congress and the executive that in many ways feel as if they have to um, at least show some type of deference to the prerogatives of those people who put them in office and and that's kind of the, you know, at least one explanation for why there has not been greater resistance from Congress to the extent that they are trying to, quote unquote, respect the the group of people that um, voted them in and voted in the president. But on the other hand, you do have the judiciary, which because of our constitutional structure, the federal judiciary has, you know, lifetime tenure. They are uh, outside of the political process directly and therefore have a longer vision about um, what their role is with regards to maintaining the integrity integrity of the Constitution. And so I'm quite hopeful by the last by the events of the, of the past week and to the extent that the judiciary has, um, and from my understanding, faithfully upheld their their role of making sure that the, the executive does not exceed his uh, his constitutional boundaries, but it remains to be seen about. You know what is the long-term impact of the executive being in constant battle with the judiciary? And I think you know one thing to keep in mind is that this is not the first time that a president has gone to battle with the judiciary. It's not the it's not the first time that um, judges have been criticized as being quote unquote political or overstepping their boundaries. This has been a long-time tradition in constitutional law, and there have been flare-ups and ebbs and flows throughout the history of our country. But it's certainly um, we're certainly at at a moment where we have to pay attention and. Um, You know, the question of whether or not these statements from the executive are eroding trust in the judiciary or are they eroding trust in the the executive themselves or or something else. So this thing can go in a lot of different directions and it's something that we really have to just keep an eye on.
0: But, Nancy, I also think that the Congress should play a stronger role in the checks and balances of our our system. And when you have an incident like that happened last week with these significant allegations of the conversations that occurred between Flynn and the Russians and then who knew what when, there could be a flurry of investigations opened up by Congress, and they could be not closed. They could appoint a special prosecutor. They could appoint a special committee to investigate. But I don't see that happening, and I I see that as a dereliction of their duty. And when Osagi says that they're there at the behest of the people who put them in office— that's skewed right now, in my opinion. It's heavily skewed because of how all of the districting, redistricting has gone on at the statewide level. So, you know, that's, that's a whole nother topic we could spend. I mean, who's representing whom? Um, so mm-hmm. when you have 65 percent of the people not thinking that Trump is being an effective leader, then who takes that voice into account? Right now, nobody is.
1: Right, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think you know what Congress is doing now is that they're looking at approval ratings, and my sense is that every single Congressperson has a number in mind. There's a point at which the approval ratings uh, for the current administration will dip to a point where they will start thinking about how uh, the country's and their constituents' sentiments about the administration will affect their re-election chances, and they will make a cold, calculated decision about. How they will respond um, in their capacity. So, and that's where, you know, in terms of, of you know, what each branch is responding to, is it's important to keep an eye on in terms of what motivates each branch. And um, I think, um, you know, Congress's inaction right now may very well be temporary.
3: Well, I want to thank you all for joining me for In Studio this week at Life of the Law. This week, we're in production on a story uh, behind the scenes about a clinic in Canada where junkies go to shoot up with illegal drugs paid for by tax dollars, Canadian tax dollars, to try and stop the opioid um, deaths that are happening in their community. Um, We'll bring that to you in our next feature investigative report at Life of the Law. I hope you'll all join us on March 7th when we publish The Luckiest Junkies in the World. That's March 7th. And then for our in-studio on March 21st, when we get back together in the studio at KQED, do you have a question about the law or do you have feedback for us about this conversation? Or do you have a news story that you want us to kind of sort out? Send an email to connect at lifeofthelaw.org. Be sure to include your contact information so we can follow up. I'd like to thank Life of the Laws team, Brittany Batorf, attorney and chair of Life of the Laws advisory board, Osagi Obaski, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a member of Life of the Laws advisory board, Tony Gannon, Life of the Laws senior producer, and Kirsten Jesuits heidel our post-production editor, for coming into the studio today. Tony Gannon will senior produce this episode, and Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane will post produce our episode. We'd like to thank Danny Bringer and Howard Gelman at KQD in San Francisco who engineered today. If you want to know more about how the law works, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind the scenes look at Life of the Law, including notes from our reporters and our listeners. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct cost of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law...
0: Yeah, I thought it was set up. Trying to get us corralled. or down into all of us in one little section, and then just going to... Arrest us all or you know, you never know.
1: So we are yeah, we are the luckiest junkies in North America.
3: (laughs) That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.